welcome to Act to Age, a podcast where two adults dive into young adult books in order to discuss how their appeal transcends age and other boundaries. My name is Tasia. And I'm Corinne. And today we are talking about A Court of Mist and Fury by Sarah J. Mass with returning guest, Jesse. Hey, everybody. It's Hello. me. Back to talk about another one of my boyfriends. Noted recent Stan, Jesse. I can't help myself. I it don't is. blame you. <laughs> I mean, I'm blushing. Okay, God, this is gonna go well. It is thirty yeah. seconds in, and sweating. we're already like overcome. <laughs> uh, so great! Thank uh, everyone for coming back for our second episode in our massive summer binge to discuss this book. Which I think I don't want to speak for you guys, but I feel safe in saying like this book is why we love this series. Mm-hmm. Uh, really great and i'm really excited to talk about it in a maybe more coherent way than we just did and that we're already so giggly this is gonna go downhill fast apologize yeah apologies to anybody listening i think no apologies if you're here and you're listening and you've read (laughs) this book you know like you know what's gonna happen but yeah jesse thank you for joining us we are very excited to have you here Oh, I love being here. This is so Great. much fun. I've been looking forward to this. It's been a while. You, you once again practically threatened violence, so it I was going to happen. <laughs> come on. <laughs> you you did, but it's okay because we acquiesce quite easily. We uh, like you when you threaten yeah. violence. It's fine. Exactly. Yes, uh, exactly. We, lo- we love the enthusiasm. So before we get into the book, as usual, we are going to talk about what we're obsessing over this week. Jesse. So this is completely inadvertent and just a coincidence, but I am obsessing over another Sarah J. Mass series, um, the Throne of Glass series. This was uh, my first introduction to Sarah J. Mass years ago when I was getting back to reading like 2016-ish. And I picked up uh, Assassin's Blade, which is like a prequel. uh, It's written as a prequel, but I think it was published after the first two books in the series were written. And then I read all of that. And then I picked up the first Throne of Glass book and I read about 30% of it and absolutely hated it. And I swore off the series. I swore off the author and I said, never again. And then Corinne uh, convinced me to read uh, the court books, which I completely fell in love with. And I bought the entire Throne of Glass books, which are sitting beautifully behind me with their, their nerdy ink covers. And it's been sort of my white whale of fantasy. I, I figured that I would like it better this time. And, but I just sitting on my shelf taunting me because each book is like a thousand pages long. And I decided finally I was going to start reading them. And I've, I was like, I'm not going to get obsessed. I'm not going to get obsessed. And I'm, I'm so obsessed with these Famous books. last words. Yeah. <laughs> I made it past where I, where I ended the first time and, and got really into it. And I'm about, halfway through queen of shadows which is was the one two fourth book not including assassin's blade and i just have to keep going i'm going to shirk all my responsibilities until i finish these books i can't stop thinking about them yeah i mean sarah i don't know how she does it but they're just all of her books are so addicting and i'm glad that i i came back to them with an open mind and um don't read Assassin's Blade first, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really good moral uh, of the story. Yeah. I, I, like you, read... Um, I don't think I read Assassin's Blade. I think I read the first Throne of... I think I maybe even read the first two years ago and just wasn't... like. I don't think I hated them, but I just wasn't interested enough to continue. But now that it's been, it's been some time and I've read the whole court series and I think... 
my, my maybe my expectations are time. I'm I'm excited to get into it now, have, being more familiar with her work and uh, adjusting my expectations accordingly. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to be where you are soon enough. Yeah, it's it's kind of incredible how uh, how the books suck you in and um, just how she does it and she weaves the stories and and I definitely think the first two books are are the weakest in the series. I think Corinne warned me about that going in, and even though I like imprinted immediately on one of the characters who's just like a sad sack, and I keep being like, <laughs> oh, we love a sad sack. I love, I love him so much, and he just keeps getting shit on like catnip. Yeah. And even though like the main love interest isn't someone that I'm super into, at least yet, but I'm I'm so along for the ride. I'm very excited. This thrills me to no end because it's very hard for me to read books that both of you have not read because then who do I talk about with them? And I read Throne of Glass about this time last year and absolutely loved it. I I won't go into the nitty gritty of it, but like on the whole, I like it much more than A Court of Thrones and Roses, that whole series. So I just is thrilled that Jesse's reading it now that Teja, you're going to read it. I think we were just in the preliminary stages of planning this podcast, actually. And I read Throne of Glass. And I'm like, I regret informing Teja. I may make you read this for the podcast one day. And we did talk about doing like a really big, massive summer binge where we did like all of her books, but just it was too much. Uh, I think eventually, though, we'd like to do another another massive binge at some point maybe we'll do throne of glass but uh this just this just thrills me and for that reason i have no other obsession this week other than this series court of thrones and roses because normally what i try to do when we're covering a series on this show i try just to read the book we're covering and then not read the next one until after we've recorded that episode not happening here marty like halfway through Court of Rings and Ruins. Tage has already finished it. So like we're doing we're doing great. So I'm just totally in on that. And then every time Jesse texts me about something she's in the middle of in one of the Throne of Glass books, I like pause and like get that book off the shelf and I look at it and I read it. So I'm just in both worlds here. And this is this is why uh we are obsessed with Sarah Dumas. She's like totally pulled you in she does not let you go and I feel like I'm fevered and I know what's happening in both series like why am I reading these like I've never read them before it's a magic trick I don't know how she does it there really is something so addictive about these books I I remember reading uh, A Court of Thorns and Roses years ago and you know liking it fine liking it fine enough to get to you know finish the series but this time reading it, I am so much more pulled in. And I think part of it is is having you guys to talk to, you yeah. know, talk to about these books. It makes really any reading experience so much more fun and uh, just so much richer. I don't know how I used to read like and just sit with books by myself and not talk to people about them. But yeah, um, yeah so I'm I'm fully obsessed with with these books right now. Um, it's really annoying. <laughs> but uh, I'm also, I also, um, I finally caught up and, and finished Loki and, ah, yes. you know, uh, welcome back my 2012 Loki, Tom Hiddleston obsession, uh, RIP me, I guess. I have told you both this off air, I think, but when I first read A Court of Thorns and Roses, I somehow pictured Lucian as like a ginger Tom Hiddleston. I think it's just something about like his like smarminess that kind of just mm-hmm. made me think of Loki a little bit. And so uh, or at least book one Lucian. Yes. Book one Lucian is very, <sighs> it's yes. 
So <laughs> that's very, it's a very timely obsession because he's like back at the forefront of my brain. And I was like, well, perfect. As mm-hmm. I dive back into my like headcanon of who Lucian is and what he looks like. So I love that. But no, look, he was, was super, super fun. My favorite of the Marvel Disney plus shows so far. Yeah. Easy. Over. I mean, he, anytime he's on screen, I'm just like, captivated. he's so charismatic. Yeah. So as a solution. And you know what? Yes, book one, Lucian is one thing, but we'll talk about Lucian in this book. I think. Speaking of sad, sad characters I, that I, I can't so stop thinking about. We're a trio of Lucian supporters on this podcast. Mm-hmm. This is the Pro Lucian Vincera podcast. So get ready for that and other things, other hot takes as we uh, go through here today. So I guess since we've already just basically been talking about the book, let's talk about the book. I will start off here with a book summary of what happens in this book, as we always like to start off our episodes here going to credit my sources here. This is stolen from a website called pluggedin.com. I did edit it down somewhat because it was very long and I just made it slightly less long. And I think eliminated a lot of references to any member of the inner circle, but it's fine. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> just realizing, but they'll get their, their credit later. So here we go. Months have passed since Feyre saved the Fey Kingdom of Prithian from Amarantha. Feyre now lives with the magic gifts the High Lords of all seven Fey Courts gave her. Immortality is one of them. She's still bonded to Resand, High Lord of the Night Court, and obligated to spend one week of every month with him. So far, though, he has not come to collect on the debt. Feyre is now engaged to Chandlin and lives with him in his estate in the Spring Court. Feyre suffers from depression and harrowing nightmares of the innocent fairies she killed during the trials under the mountain. Her relationship with Tamlin is strained as he has his own nightmares but refuses to open up to Feyre, choosing instead to keep her secluded in the manor under heavy guard. Feyre wants her freedom and to learn to fight, but Tamlin refuses and tasks her with preparing for their wedding and becoming a proper hostess for visitors to the Spring Court. On their wedding day, Feyre feels overwhelmed and wants to escape, knowing that she isn't ready for this marriage. During the ceremony, she has a panic attack. Reese hears her through their bond, appears, and takes her away to the night court for a week. Reese gives Feyre space and freedom. He introduces her to his cousin, Morgan, a high fey woman, and the two become friends. During her time there, he teaches her to read and tells her that when the High Lords gave her a bit of their magic to save her life, she also received their powers and abilities. He tells her she is stronger than she knows and should be taught to use her abilities. When Feyre goes back to Tamlin's manor, she is overjoyed to see him, but he grills her on everything she saw and heard in the night court. Feyre asks him about her new abilities, and Tamlin admits that he knew she had them, but that they are too dangerous for her to use and train to use. He only wants to keep her safe and protected from those who will want her power for themselves. As the weeks pass, Tamlin becomes more controlling, and... Casts the shield around the manor, imprisoning Feyre inside. She has flashbacks of being trapped under the mountain by Amarantha and passes out. Rhysand rescues her and takes her to his secret city of Valeris. Turns out that Rhysand keeps two courts, the public hewn city, a place of wickedness and debauchery, and Valeris, a secret, peaceful seaside city of beauty, art, and culture. Feyre stays at Reese's town home in Valeris, where she slowly learns to grapple with her depression and the end of her relationship with Tamlin. Reese is suspicious that the king of the neighboring kingdom of Highburn is preparing to attack Prithian. The king has been unhappy with the treaty to end human enslavement and wishes to break down the wall between Prithian and the mortal world. They learn that the king is reassembling the cauldron, a magical object of immense power from which their world was created and plans to use it to shatter the wall. As Rhysand and Pharaoh work towards finding a way to destroy the cauldron, Pharaoh slowly falls in love with Rhys, ultimately learning that he is her mate. 
After a devastating attack on Valeris and armed with an ancient book containing a spell that can be used to destroy the cauldron, Farah and the others sneak into the Highburn Castle and they find the cauldron. Before Farah can utter the spell to break it, Talon and Lucian show up, having made a bargain with the king. If the king helps get Farah back, Talon will allow him passage into the mortal realm through the spring court. Farah refuses to go with Tamlin, but the king has caught her sisters and uses them to show that it's safe to be remade into High Fae by the cauldron. Lucian looks at the newly made Fae Elaine and realizes that she is his mate. Farah knows that she has no choice as she must save her sisters and her friends. She pretends that Reese has always had her under his control. She asks Tamlin to take her home to the spring court and begs the king to break the mating bond. The king thinks he has severed the mating bond, but it is still intact. Farah telepathically asks Reese to teleport himself and her sisters out of Highburn. Farah, Tamlin, and Lucian return to the spring court. Reese returns to Valeris and tells the others that the night before they went to Highburn, he and Farah went to a priestess and she was sworn in as High Lady of the Night Court, who Tamlin has now unknowingly allowed into his territory to spy on him. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, with that end, how do you not begin the next book when you have it sitting there on your shelves? I mean, right. it's a great setup. So that's a book. My apologies to Amarin, Cassian, and Azrael, who I did not mention. Instead, <laughs> I mentioned Moore, who is no offense, my least favorite member of the inner circle. She's uh, the Morrigan, Corinne. She's truth or whatever. I don't know what that whatever means. that means. I don't know what that means. So before we dive into the nitty gritty of this book, I think we should just briefly talk about mythology surrounding this book or inspiring this book like we did with our first episode on the first book in the series like that one this is very clearly a retelling of a, a famous story a famous myth and particularly um, it's a Hades and Persephone retelling super fun I we don't have Aubrey here with us this week who is our um, mythology like go-to here but in brief Hades is the god of the underworld he kidnaps Persephone takes her against her will into the underworld and later he strikes a bargain with Zeus by which Persephone leaves the underworld for six months of the year but then has to go back into the underworld for six months of the year the six months where she is in the underworld are like winter and then spring and summer when she's let free and that's what we have here with this bargain that we see Reese and Farah make in the first book but as is really popular in Persephone and Hades retellings Hades is not always what he seems and we kind of knew that already about Resand from the first book uh, but we really get the full picture of it here so I talked a lot about in our first episode how I did not like the first book the first time I read it and I had to be in our spoiler section I talked about how I had to be convinced that I should go on because I was very, very nervous that in reading this book, it would brush aside the fact that Tamlin was being a huge asshole and would never really like reckon with that or deal with that. I, I knew that Rhysand was going to be the ultimate love interest in this series, but I didn't think that it was possible based on how that book was written that Sarah J. Mass would ever be like, oh yeah, no, this was actually was a problem. Well, joke's on me because that's what this whole book is. And I think that the surprise of that is what really makes it so special. And then I think how really well done it is in its execution of of that and confronting that. And I just, I love that so much. I think this book does a really good job of sort of showing how 
how the trauma from under the mountain if affected Tamlin as well and traumatized him as well while not like while still holding him accountable for his reactions to that and the way that he treats Farah as a result and that there's no excuses being made for him which is I think what I would have expected as well mm-hmm. and just the way that that kind of unfolds throughout the book is is Farah's realization of how abusive he really was toward her I think it's really well done when yeah. Akatar ends the first book, I, I I think I remember messaging Korean and saying, I know that she ends up with Rysan, but she literally, you know, the, her love is what saved Tamlin, saved all of Perithian, essentially. How will she leave him? Like, I just didn't, it didn't compute. Like, and, But the book opens with her, like, actually vomiting, like her being physically sick in the Supreme Court. And, and, and so immediately when that when that happens, you're like, okay, so this is not the love story that I was expecting. And so you immediately get dropped in and you know that something's not right here. And it's really fascinating the way that it unfolds and you realize exactly what what happened and, and how this is starting to go so poorly and why. We've talked a lot about the Carry On trilogy on this podcast. And I think it's kind of similar in the sense where, you know, at the end of carry on you that you can maybe assume that like oh everything's good now like they defeated the big bad everything's you know and the the couple got together yay uh and then the next two books are all just about dealing with the trauma the fallout everything else and it's kind of like that in that way where at the end of akatar you could be like oh well you know the they're going home together to the spring court everything's good amarantha's dead but really no it's about dealing with the trauma for everybody involved after you know for for all of the Fae, it's fifty years of of oppression under Amarantha and, and torture and abuse, and then for Farah, like just all of the extreme trauma that she went through under the mountain. One of the things that I really like about, in particular, how the Tamlin stuff is handled in this book is, yes, as you said, Teach, like he has his own issues after Under the Mountain. Anyone who is there, obviously, is going to have their own issues after that, but. It does not use that, again, as an excuse for his behavior. I like that Ferris says at one point, you know, she was talking about how, yeah, she did love him, but maybe those things had blinded me. Maybe they'd been a blanket over my eyes about the temper, the need for control, the need to protect that ran so deep he'd lock me up like a prisoner. So we talked a lot about, like, the red flags that we felt that Tamlin showed in the first book. And, you know, everyone has different responses to trauma, but his manifest in really heightening all of his worst impulses in a lot of ways and the book I think does a really good job of balancing kind of both sides of that you know we get Lucian talking about how like I had the same experience where the woman I loved like I heard her heartbeat stop Tamlin heard your neck snap but he now has gotten you back. And so you have to allow him a little bit of grace. Like he's not going to bend on this yet because he'll do anything to keep you safe. And that is in many ways, like a very valid position to take. But then I think Lucian's a great character to look at then too, because you can see how he starts to track of like, this is going too far in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and how easy it feels. So when he starts helping Feyre more and trying to advocate for her more, as Tamlin continues to just shut her down and completely lock her out from any discussions about what's happening in the world, what's happening with her powers, and then like physically locking her in the house. 
but I like how there's still room for empathy for Tamlin in some ways, because obviously in Lucian says too, he's lost so many people in his life and it's true, but it doesn't ever let him off the hook. It does. If Hayra never lets him off the hook and then we as the readers, then I think don't ever have to think about letting him off the hook because he is doing these awful things. And then obviously the end of the book is just like, absolutely fuck this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. And also I think just, the way that Farah and Tamlin are both just dealing with so much trauma and, and they're sleeping in the same bed, but Farah is getting up in the middle of the night to hurl her guts up and, and have all these terrible nightmares. But Tamlin's so consumed with his own, like he, he's so afraid to even bring up anything about under the mountain. Like Amarantha is, is like a taboo word. They can't even say her name. He's so busy trying to ignore his own trauma that he's ignoring Ferris as well and leaving her alone to deal with it, like not even bothering to to get out of bed. And like even Reese, when I think the first time he takes her to the night court or whatever, and he says, you know, he he says, does he ever ask you why why you hurl your guts up every night or why you can't go into certain rooms or see certain colors? Like he's only been observing her through this bond and, and through their uh, bargain. And he has picked up on all of, on all of her tells and all of her ticks and all of her triggers. And Tamlin is just, he's got the the blinders up and he's, he's not willing to look at his own trauma. So he's not willing to look at hers. You guys do a really good job in your Akatar episode uh, talking about all the ways that sort of that Tamlin's, you know, anger issues, a lot of this was foreshadowed in ways that we don't necessarily see. And something that I didn't notice until my reread is, yes, Tamlin has a lot of issues. Yes, Tamlin doesn't understand or recognize or refuses to recognize Vera's trauma, but also Vera comes back from the mountain, under the mountain, completely different as well. And she's now needs something different. And that recognition is something that I really appreciate in Mass's work, even though I might not at first, is that sometimes, is that we all change. And sometimes the thing that we think is right for us, the thing that we want, that changes as we grow and as we become different people. You know, Farah thinks pretty early to her credit that a protector, that's who he was and who he would always and would always be. What I had wanted when I was cold and hard and joyless, what I had needed to melt the ice of bitter years on the cusp of starvation, I didn't have the nerve to wonder what I wanted or needed now, who I had become. So she comes back different and doesn't and it's just fascinating to watch Feyre grow and realize what she wants is different, as well as see how badly that comes right up against not only who Tamlin is and a lot of his issues, but who he refuses. But he just refuses to recognize that Feyre is different, just constantly giving her paints. She hasn't painted since she's been back. Like, can't you see that? He just refuses to see that. He just wants to see her as she was. And it just fights and it, and it the tension has to come out at some point. Yeah. For a writer who I a lot of times take issue with her lack of subtlety, and we can talk about that when we talk about like movies and sex scenes and stuff in this book, I think she also, to piggyback off of what you said, Jesse, just really walks a great balance of like never victim blaming Farah, which a, a lesser writer I feel like would kind of engage in that for like falling for Tamlin. I mean, falling in love, but also like falling for his like shtick in a lot of ways. Uh, but she doesn't at all. She has Farah say things, and I I love this moment so much. 
I'm thinking that I was a lonely, hopeless person and I might have fallen in love with the first thing that showed me a hint of kindness and safety. And I'm thinking that maybe he knew that, maybe not actively, but maybe he wanted to be that person for someone. And maybe that worked for who I was before. Maybe it doesn't work for who, what I am now. So when last week, I think I was, you know, very harsh on Farah and in terms of like, just not really like getting very hard to like lock into her, her psyche in that book. But I think what this book then does really well is show like why she was so broken and why she does all the things she does in that book, which may have been frustrating to me as a reader and and explains it in a way that does not, again, blame her for anything and for being, you know, stupid enough to fall in love with Tamlin or anything like that. He has his good moments for sure, but she has reasons for why she was like susceptible to like looking, casting a blind eye to the other things. And I really like that to, especially when you step back and look at the context of these books, how massively popular they are. They're so popular. And, and it, it's great to know that there's a story out there like this that can reach so many different types of readers so they, and, and have this really important, I guess, lesson almost laid out here about like how, easily this can happen but like how there is a way out and like how you deserve more and it's just no matter like what shit people give sarah j mass like i think this book is so important for that for that reason and the series is so important it may not be the best example of it ever in literature but because of its popularity and because it also has this like really compelling plot and really compelling love story to like go around with it it just hits on so much so well i think I agree. I was really hard on myself when I reread Akatar, I think, because I was like, how did I not see these signs? Like I was into Tamlin. Like I was. Like I was I I bought it. Um, it sounds like more than oh, than you guys, definitely. I and I just like didn't I, I was like, how am I gonna ship her with someone else? Like I just imprinted right away, like I always do. And I like missed a lot of the signs. Like I was like that scene where he like bites her, like that's so hot. And like, no, it's not. Like there are a lot of issues. It's is hot though. Like it is, I yeah. get it, yeah. I think one of the one of the things that I really dislike in books is I don't like first person point of view, but I th- do think it works here because we're only in Feyre's mind, and like we've we've said, she was so alone and in desperate need of someone to feel safe that when you're in her perspective and she's think she's constantly making excuses for him, and and you as the reader are like, okay, Feyre thinks this, like I'm going to think that too, and I, I think that the way that it's so interesting because A Court of Silver Flames is not first person and Throne of Glass isn't first person. So, But it's fascinating that these books are, and you're just really from, with the exception of Reese's chapter at the end, you're just in Farrah's mind. And I think it actually really works here because you're along on her journey and you're in her mind. And that's, I'm not as hard at myself. That's such a good point. And, you know, I've always like wondered too why, like, yeah, I've always looked at it as a weakness of this series, but you're right. In order to like pull that, I, saying a trick makes it sound cheap, but it's not. Like it's very intentional why she does all of this. But like she, it, and it's the only way. I think you're right that she could pull this kind of trick on the readers because we have to be in Feyre's mind to even like also be tempted by Tamlin, and he does have tempting moments. That episode was very hard for us because it's really hard to unring that bell in a lot of ways of what you then like know from this book and how absolutely awful he truly is, but she does like a good job. And I think resonates with a lot of readers that like, there's really good things about him and they're really good for Farah. You want her to have nice things. You want her to be 
taken care of for once. He does all that until he goes in the right direction. I totally agree. I think it's really important that these are like, you're so deep in Ferris POV because you need to go down, like you said, take that journey with her. Um, and also to kind of fall for Tamlin a little bit or to fall for his whole thing a little bit. Um, because then you can also track through her, through the way that Farrah tracks it, um, the acceleration of his like abusive and controlling behaviors and how, how it just gets amped up and amped up until like those little bursts of temper that he has where he destroys a piece of furniture or something that he's holding or next to, um, turns into him kind of like blowing up a room and the only way that she is not injured in that process is, that is she comes up with a shield of her own. And and the way that he acts when those things happen, like he he acts like his temper is this animalistic part of him. And, and it kind of almost literally is because he's shifting into like a beast form when he does these things. And so he kind of thinks that like there's a separation there. Like, oh, look what you made me do. Like you made me turn into this thing. Like look at what I destroyed. And then his apologies are all mostly physical. They're not a change in behavior. They're, they're, you know, Oh, he made love to me from morning to night and blah, blah, blah. Like that reads to me as like trying to fuck somebody into submission, essentially like, Oh, look at how much I love you. You see how I love you. You see how, how this affection is. And when she goes uh, with Reese for the first time, she comes back and she notes that like the whole study is destroyed. Like this other room is destroyed. Like he and, and Lucian's like, Oh, he destroyed half the house. She was gone for a week. They had time to clean that up. They have tons of servants. They have magic. I, f- I read that as him leaving that there as like a, an intentional tableau for Farah to see, like, look at what happened when you were taken from me. Look at what, what this has done to me. Like, there's no reason why that should have been there when she came back, unless he wanted to, her to see it, to see the extent of his tape, his temper, his capability for violence. And even if he's not consciously meaning for it to be, it feels very much like it's a warning. You can't see us listeners, but Jesse and I are both just sitting here shaking our head in anger <laughs> at Tamlin. Because yeah, like that's, and that's such a good point at Tasha. I never really thought of that particular scene that way but it's like so true and he's like doing these things where she's showing real true emotional vulnerability the blowing up the study or whatever she puts the shield of wind up comes where she literally says to him i feel like i'm drowning and when you do these things it's like you're pushing me further underwater and his response is to fucking blow up like oh it's literally so blow mad. up yeah and i also think you know because he does this oh it's you know it's my animal it's my beast side it's you know that's something that anybody who has been in a relationship with an abuser can recognize like that is a very familiar tack that they take, but also the fact that he's, he's very intentional with it. Cause when you see Reese come and get Feyre, like he kind of, he busts out his little claws for a second, but knows that there's really nothing he can do. So he goes passive and he, you know, watches her leave, then takes it out on the house and probably the servants, anybody else that happens to be in his blast radius but he has control. He is capable of that control. You see him just as passive as he was under the mountain when Pharaoh is getting ripped apart and tortured by Amarantha. He's just as passive when Reese comes to take her. Even Lucian, I think, looks at him and, and he's like, are you really going to let? Yeah. <laughs> like, this is your wedding. <laughs> yeah. 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 
one of the things I think you think I think is really interesting too about this whole like animalistic side of the Tamil that you were talking about is that like that's kind of a hallmark of the Fae in both this series and Throne of Glass. And I think I talked about this a little bit last week about how like that's just not something that works for me. And I think for me, that was a big issue with Tamlin plus Red Flags, like when I first read the book. But then you get a character like Rhysandip in here who does kind of some of the, it's the same Faye things, the, these like personality like ticks that she writes in these books, like the growling and the the very like purring. And there is like still some like possessive and protectiveness and like sense of ownership like the whole mate things like you're mine i'm yours like it is very like primal in a lot of ways but i think what's then interesting is like that doesn't necessarily mean bad and that's something i've had to do a lot of work on when i read even contemporary romance i have to like look at a guy who like might be like a little like too like macho masculine and that's just like a turnoff for me i don't particularly like it and i have to like look at it and be like okay is this actually bad or is it just not my personal preference so then when we get like a story like this where we have resand and a lot of things he does i would not like in real life but like he's so good on so many other levels i think it's just a really um interesting way to then like compare and contrast to and like for me to think about like okay, why did I have issues with Tamlin? Why does this place? work Was and it? this doesn't? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And territorial fey bastard. It, it's a, a repetitive phrase in her writing. And that's what they all are. They all are territorial fey bastards. Like they are. But some of them are much better than others for reasons. And just because you're growling and purring and fighting your friends in the mud after your primal <laughs> mating bond snaps into place. It doesn't mean you're like going to be a bad person. And that I think is helpful for, and for me too, who is maybe like a little too judgy of like extreme shows of masculinity like that. Um, yeah. Work. There's, you know, there's always a line. Yeah. Yeah. I think she does a really on reread. I found this really fascinating. It's not only the temperaments of Tamlin and Reese. Like, I think that's really obvious. It's not subtle how Reese is like, do whatever you want. Come with me. Like, I'm not going to put you in a cage, but there's like little things. Like she makes a point to say that Tamlin liked having his friends around and he knew um, he liked the manner full of sound and laughter and chatter. And then Farah says, yet I'd found they all talked to each other like they were sparring partners, pretty words masking sharp edged insults. And then you compare that to when we finally meet the inner circle and just how they sit at this table where no one's at the head of the table. And because Feyre even says, like, we're well, not going to sit at the head of the table. Like, no. And just the juxtaposition and the comparison is more than just who Tamlin and who Reese are. It's also like how they treat other people. And so you see Tamlin surrounding himself, like, yes, with Lucian, who we love. <laughs> and, but also these like horrible people at the court versus the inner circle that Reese has, who they're all trustworthy, and they're all friends, and they all have each other's back. And it's not about who's more powerful, it's about who's loyal. And um, it's these little things too that I never picked up on the first time around that I'm really starting to see. Um, how she put the seeds in and it's not subtle but it's done in a very clever way i think yeah i think like the starkest evidence for that is is the way that tamlin's whole court is complicit in his abuse of pharah like lucian he he tries but he really you know it's just him and he his his method is is to be like oh i'll talk to him just be patient be patient all time i'm trying i'm trying be patient um whereas Farah knows once she gets closer to the inner court, she knows without a doubt that if she wanted to get away from Reese, 
they would make that happen for her. They would not hold her back and they would not tell Reese where she was. If she wanted to be on her own, if she felt oppressed in some way or, or just needed a break for him, like she does in this book um, after she finds out that they're mates and she runs off to a cabin. She has more winnow, winnow her there and trusts more to not tell Reese and, and more doesn't. And that's, that's a huge difference where Tamlin would have like, you know, exerted his power and his control over his people to, to never allow something like that to happen. And Reese doesn't even push it, you know, like they all know without a doubt that they're going to, like he has engendered this environment where everybody that is in his circle knows that they can make choices based on what they believe is right and not like even if it's that even if that's an opposition to their high lord this is where i'm gonna like step on my lucian soapbox here for a minute it might not be the time but i'm just gonna pepper in my lucian (laughs) thoughts as they come up because like a lot of people in the fandom for like various reasons which maybe we'll talk about more in the spoiler section here today don't like lucian and they think that he could have done more for Feyre. But, like, exactly what you just said, Tasia, about how Reese like, engenders this sense of more community, but still independence and free thought and free thinking and, you know, challenging him, et cetera, et cetera. Lucian certainly has never had that with Tamlin. He didn't have it in the Autumn Court, which we get more of in later books. But, like, his, we know enough about his backstory at this point that he was nearly killed by his his family for having the gall to fall in love with a mortal woman so like it's easy to compare him to Azrael to Cassian who have grown up with Reese who has always treated them with the respect that everyone deserves Lucian has never been given that so to see him then do what he can do for Farah, I think shows what a good friend he is and I, I view him in a lot of ways as a victim of Tamlin as well. Yeah. For a longer period of time than, than Farah uh, too, because he's been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. So that's why I feel like very proud of him and what he does do to try to help her in this book. Yeah. I definitely don't want to imply that. Like, I think that Lucian didn't do enough. Like he was all, he was on his own here. Like he couldn't have done, you know, and when he did try to talk to Tamlin about it, Tamlin blew up at him too. Yeah. He was, he was under just as much of Tamlin's control as Pharaoh was. I think he definitely did do his best, but yeah, it just shows the difference between Tamlin and Reese as, as high Lords, as men and how they like the environments that they create around them and the people that they bring into their circles and the way that they exert their control and their power over people. What was that quote you sent us the other day, Jesse, that, Tara thinks about Lucian when he finds her, when they've been like tracking her and tries to like take her back. I didn't care. I just watched him uh, unyielding and cold and dark. The creature I might one day have become if I stayed at the spring court, if I had remained broken for decades, centuries. That is basically what Lucian is. Like he's this like broken creature. And yeah, just, I have a lot of feelings about it. So we're again, we're pro Lucian yeah. on this podcast. Very, very pro. Sorry. Very pro. Sorry if you're not. Um, <laughs> Sorry, you're wrong. What's it like? I was going to say, know. sorry, you're wrong. <laughs> All right. I think we've given enough airtime to, to, no, no, we haven't because we really talked about the end of the book yet with Tamlin, but let's talk about that at the end. Let's talk about like happier things here. I don't know if there's really a way to like bifurcate like Reese and Farah from each other in this book, which again, to go back to like last week when I say like Farah is not my favorite heroine ever, I think it's because it, this is her and Reese Ann's journey in so many ways. 
And that's like fine. I tend to like a little bit more like an independent heroine a lot of times. But that said, like just this book, man, these two watching them process everything they together is just like staggering to me. Everything Rhysand did for her in the first book and we get the full breadth of that here is just staggering to me. I just I'm going to let you guys talk here because I'm (laughs) melting down already. I also really love, like, not to take it back to Tamlin or anything, but even after the first time that she goes uh, with Reese and and he's trying to just sort of, like, subtly empower her. He's like, all right, we're going to sit down. You're going to learn how to read. You're going to learn how to mental block. You're going to work on your powers, blah, blah, blah. And when she goes back, like, for the first time, really, she starts to push back on Tamlin's control of her. And and, um, I think she says, like, you don't, like, don't talk to me like that. And then he, you know, blows up or whatever, like, crushes something but um yeah she starts to like regain a little bit of her confidence even as she doesn't even like Reese at you know at this moment yet yeah like he really just gets her and gets to her without like very so consciously she's like resisting him but it's there you know she comes back and she's a little bit more empowered and like I think one of the first things he says to her when he's trying to talk to her about building up her powers. And he says, I will say this once and only once, Resand Purds. Stalking to the map on the wall, you can be a pawn, be someone's reward, and spend the rest of your immortal life bowing and scraping and pretending you're less than him, than Ianthe, than any of us. If you want to pick that road, then fine. A shame, but it's your choice. The shadow of wings rippled again. But I know you more than you realize, I think. And I don't believe for one damn minute that you're remotely fine with being a pretty trophy for someone who sat on his ass for nearly 50 years and sat on his ass while you were shredded apart. And I think like she takes that and she goes home and she starts thinking like, it's just, it's a seed that's planted in her brain. And she starts to push back on Tamlin a little bit after that. It's been really stark for me. The way I divided my notes is I have a specific section where I put all the quotes that I like that have to do with Feyre's arc and fate and Feyre's character development in this book. And it to see all the quotes like in a row is really striking to me because it literally starts like, I'm so weak. Like, I don't want to be immortal. Like this life that I'm now is now immortal. It's an endless life. And like, how am I going to fill my time? And just this hopelessness and to being gradually like, I'm not, I've let them make me weak. Like I let them break me. Like, I don't want to be a pet anymore. I don't want to be weak. Like just continues, continues. And like, I was so unhappy. Like I was broken. I not only just broken, but I was so unhappy. Like I, this imagery and then all of a sudden she goes like I'm not going to be weak anymore like I'm going to be strong and then at the end she has this like beautiful moment where she sees a future for herself and she sees what she can do with that immortality that she's been given and she realizes that she says I realize how badly I've been treated before if my standards have become so low if the freedom I've been granted felt like a privilege and not an inherent right and that's just so empowering to have that be like the final tier of her development in this book to go from being so weak to being a pet doll. I don't want to be weak anymore. I want to be strong. And then at the end to being, to savoring her life, it's just such a fantastic to see it all spelled out like that. I just, it made me really appreciate the journey that she goes through here. Cause she's almost suicidal at the end of Akatar. Like she tells the bone carver, like I, I would, you know, I would have ended it. And then I, I can't imagine a life that's endless like this. And to end the book, seeing a future for herself is just so huge. It's not just about being physically strong. It's about being emotionally strong and having that self-worth, even apart from Reese, I think in that moment is just really lovely to see. 
Yeah, that was one of the things that really struck me on this reread. I often reread parts of this book all the time, but they're always like Reese Feyre moments. But in rereading the whole thing start to finish, I really got more of a sense of not the the main thing I think about when I think about this book and her journey, which is the realization of how bad the situation was in spring court and how abused she was there and moving past that. And so, so I'm not just thinking about that, but thinking about this kind of like other journey that runs parallel to that, which is the idea of reckoning with what happened under the mountain and her own like self hatred for it, which is so visceral and so, so real. And just, there's more, quiet moments I think about that but I picked up on them more on this reread you know she thinks at one point like maybe it'd be a mercy to be ended and maybe it'd be yes maybe it'd be a mercy to be ended a broad hand gripped my face gently enough not to hurt but hard enough to make me look at him don't you ever think that resand hissed eyes livid not for one damn minute and then like the scene where she's training with Cassian and she's like thinking through all the Tamlin stuff and she's just like I'm I, like so pissed off that this happened but then like at the end, she just like says like it should have been me, like thinking about the fairies that she killed, and Cassian's like there it is, like and she just breaks down. I love tracking that part of her journey too, and that I think is the the main connection with her and Resand is that like they've both had to do like absolutely horrible, terrible things, and they have to like realize that they like both have such inherent self worth. And like how they help each other, like right, yeah, I think like them having um, empathy for the other and in, in the things that they had to do, that the other had to do in order to survive and thrive and and move on, is like it. Yeah, like you said, it helps both of them so much to be like, oh well, if I can forgive this person for the choices, the horrible things that they've had to do and the horrible choices that they've had to make, then I can forgive myself. And just. Like spoilers to our favorite arc section, but Farrah's arc in this book is fucking incredible. It is so good. But it's so good. And like just little moments too. like, this is a quote she says at one point too. like, I would not be weak again. I would not be dependent on anyone else. I would never have to endure the touch of the adder as it dragged me because I was too helpless to know where and how to hit it never again. And then like, she gets her comeuppance on him, like in the attack on Highburn. And that's like such, such a, a bad bitch moment. Like, oh my God. She's like, oh my God. It's so air. good. It's so, it's, it's to see her too. Like in that moment too, she's like starting to like go back to the townhouse and is like going to let people inside, which is like a very like noble thing and like very helpful. But then she's like, he's mine. Like I'm, I'm coming after this dude. And I oh got, I just, I love that so much and how that all like this like ties into Reese and like everything he did for her just like it like is so staggering to me like we talked about this in our first episode like we know these moments you know we tried to keep from like what we know from Ferris POV at that point like not trying to spoil but like to get the full picture of it from Reese and here and everything that he did to like enable her to not break under the mountain, to not break under Tamlin, to empower her subtly, as you talked about, and really just like having this connection, like, and even yeah. not just for Farah, like he does so much for for Farah as well, but like for everybody under the mountain, the way he 
in in the only ways, like the very subtle ways that he could try to protect everybody, even Claire. Like he when he gave Amarantha Claire's name, the the name that Farah gave him, um, he assumed it was a fake name. He did not know that she had just pulled a name from her own memory, from her own acquaintance. And that when that person was taken in, believed to be Farah and tortured and, and maimed and just, you know, given a horrible death that he had gone into her head and made sure she didn't feel a second of it. And, you know, it's still obviously terrible that she had to <laughs> die basically, you know, for people believing that she was somebody else, but just that he felt enough for her, this human that he had no connection with, that he didn't know at all, that he made sure she didn't suffer and then killed her humanely. Basically it's, he did so much under there. Like, these these people these fairies are are 500 years old that's just so much time but i think i constantly have to remind myself that the way they view time is just so different than anything i can really like it's imaginable so you have reese who's been separated from his family for 50 years which isn't completely insignificant in a 500 year lifespan and then it's been three months that he's been back that that his friends have seen him and there's that scene where the inner circle meets and they're just like staring at Reese and he just doesn't see it. I, it's so funny to me that he's this all powerful, like devastatingly handsome person, man, male. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, <laughs> and he's so insecure. He just sees himself as a monster and it takes Farah just being like, I'm not, you know, if I, if you're a mon, like you're a monster, I'm a monster. We're not monsters. You know, she says at one point when she helps him during a nightmare, my darkness sang his own a lullaby. And I just love that imagery so much in the way that it's not just re-saving Feyre from Tamlin from like, it's, they're saving, it's really complimentary. It's one of my favorite relationships that when they finally say I love you she just says I think what we have is stronger than love like this the word love doesn't encompass what it is and it's all encompassing like soulmate completeness and the way that race becomes better person and leader from Farah, this like 18 year old human girl and like before they've even hooked up and before she knows that they're mates or anything and he's like in a mood you know and and she thinks week after week, he'd fought for me, even when I had no reaction, even when I had barely been able to speak or bring myself to care if I lived or died or ate or starved. I couldn't leave him to his own dark thoughts, his own guilt. He'd shoulder them alone long enough. Like they're already so like just helping each other through their traumas. I mean, Reese was, like you said, under that mountain for 50 years away from his family while trying to like mentally control people around him so that the secret of his city doesn't get out, while trying to alleviate suffering wherever he could, while being raped for that entire 50 years, like and pretending to be this awful person. Right. It's just it's it's too much. One of my favorite scenes in the whole book, A, because it's so freaking hot, but B because of like <laughs> the like more quiet moment. And it is the third room scene when they go to the uh or nightmares because holy shit it's so hot i think i was telling you guys the first time i read this book i got to that part at like two o'clock in the morning and uh i texted my friend who just read it i was like I can't what i'm reading right now it's so hot like oh my god but then he's he's so nervous before they go there and he's like you finally just stopped looking at me like a monster like i don't want you to see what i have to be like down there and sh- during that whole time she's speaking to him through the bond being like i see you i know you 
nothing about you scares me. And it's just like, it's too emotional for me. I just, it really, and she says it like one point too, for who she's talking to, but he thinks he'll be remembered as the villain in the story, but I forgot to tell him that the villain is usually the person who locks the maiden up and throws away the key. He was the one who let me out. She's talking to Amrit in that scene too. So to have like the most stoic, like, yeah, all-knowing being, being the person that she's telling this to. And I think at one point she says, like, Reese is really lucky to have all you. And Amrin says, we're lucky to have him. And this is Amrin. And just, like, such a moment, such a powerful moment. I say, like, so much about Reese and, and Feyre's connection, too, is, like you said, Corinne, her seeing him. Like, not, not any mask that he wears, not his crown, not his power, not what he can do. Um, seeing him for him. And I think she's when she decides she, she like wants, wants to hook up with him, like that she does have feelings for him and she, you know, and she thinks for him, not the high Lord, not the most powerful male in Prithian's history, just him, the person who had sent music into that cell, who had picked up that knife in Amaranth's throne room to fight for me when no one else dared and who had kept fighting for me every day since refusing to let me crumble and disappear into nothing. Uh, and it's like such a good callback too. She tells Lucian at the beginning, like she only wants to marry Tamlin. Like I want to marry him. Like I'm not marrying High Lord. He's like they're one and the same. And like resends like proof that it doesn't have to be. It's so good. And then like I feel like too on this reread, I felt like more like keyed into like Reese's struggles. Like I was paying more attention to it because it's hard when you're not in his POV like you are in Ferris. But like I love the summer court stuff. Um, I didn't talk, cut that out of the summer too, but when they go to the summer court to steal ha- um, half of the book of begin- beginnings, belongings, beginning, breathings. Right. Sure. Book of well, bre- <laughs> the book. <laughs> the book. Um, they go to steal half of the book from the summer court, and he really likes Tarquin, the High Lord of Summer, and thinks about how he's. He talks, he's talking about how he's jealous of Tarquin, not just because Farrah said to him he'd be really easy to fall in love with, which, I mean, I read a whole Tarquin book, Sarah. Just I'll put that out there. Seems great. Um, but he talks about how he was jealous of, like, how the summer court has always been neutral. I spared his life because I'd heard how he wanted to even out the playing field between high fae and lesser fairies. I've been trying to do that for years unsuccessfully, but I spared him for that alone. And Tarquin was with his neutral court, he will never have to worry about someone walking away because the threat against their life, their children's life will always be there. So yes, I was jealous of him because it will always be easy for him and he will never know what it is like to look up the nice guy and wish. And so like that element of Reese's personality too is another way that, yeah, like he's just so fundamentally different from Tamlin because he's so so concerned about everyone all the time, but his, his reaction to that is self-sacrifice and then choice, which I think we need to talk about too. And like, just how he gives her, it's always her choice. It's constantly like about her choice. And I, I just love like affirming love that, that constantly for her, which is so important for like her, her own trauma and for like, the, especially the Tamlin related stuff. Like he makes it so clear to her constantly. It's just like in, in that, like, repetitive comforting way like you will always have a choice your level of involvement and participation is always entirely up to you um even when uh like there's this part later where where um she thinks even if i hadn't been in love with him i might have loved him for that for not insisting i stay even if it drove his instincts mad for not locking me away in the aftermath of what had happened yesterday and then it goes on into that quote that jesse you said earlier um about like the 
you know, her freedom being a, a right and not a privilege. I love that you mentioned the Tarquin stuff because I think at one point, if you were to say it would be easy to like fall in love with him, but there would be always be a part of her that was too dark that he would just wouldn't understand. But like Ryson like completes her in all those ways because they're both dark the same way and they they can understand each other. Uh, it's it's a lot. I love that darkness thing when when Lucian catches up with them in the woods and um he's like trying to get Farah to go back to the spring court and she says when you spend so long trapped in darkness, Lucian, you find that the darkness begins to stare back. And I love that. Like that's, that's so her like embodying the whole, like the fiction really of, of the night court and Volaris and, and how like, like she's wearing that mask now too. Like that mask that, that, that Reese puts on to scare others into, into keeping his city safe and everything that she's willingly cloaking herself in that darkness to play that role too. And it's just really nice. I love when she does that too during that throne room scene too. She has like a moment where she's like on his lap and she's just like, I'm like, she's basically like, I'm a fucking rock star. Like I'm Mm -hmm. doing this. Like, and just like totally leans into their sexual performance. (laughs) Just like, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not weak. I'm the powerful. And this is how I'm an exerter right now. Like through this like display of sexuality. And I really like that. I'm trying to like throw a negative thought out here now just because like it was not all a total gushing hour, but I've done a lot of reflection on this reread on the concept of mates. And like faded mates is not like one of my favorite tropes ever. And then like obviously like the base animalistic like side of mates here is something that like I've talked about I don't like. One of the things that I do like about the uh Feyre stuff and re stuff in this book is that like there's also grappling with her for leaving Tamlin and then starting to feel something for Reese so soon thereafter. And she has a lot of guilt about that. And I think that that's very important too because I think that's realistic. Like people feel that way and they like, meet someone and like, Oh, is it too soon? Like, is this a betrayal? Like, Oh my God. And she like calls herself a traitor. She, she has a lot of self-doubt about it. But then like the thing that turns it around for her is the idea that like resand is her mate. Like I left and I found my mate like this. Okay. I'm not tra- a traitor's pa- piece of filth anymore. Like I'm not. So I, I don't like that. How it kind of is like, in that way like yeah like this is all good like and this is all great because they have this like their faded mates to be together like i feel like this story could be so strong on their uh, its own without like ever talking about mates it's not necessary to me that's like my brief negative thing on mates very small nitpick but i could do without it yeah i'll be curious to see what happens in the future particularly with I mean, for many reasons, with the Lucian and Elaine bond, I think that if Sarah wanted to make a commentary on mating bonds, she could do it with that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, she's, she flirts with it when she talks about Reese's parents being technically mated, but not right for each other. But we get so many other times where they do talk about mates and how that connection is so powerful. So I'm just really curious to see what happens with Elaine and Lucian and how far she wants to take it in terms of it being a commentary on it and it just being like a fun way to like mess around. Uh, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, no, that that is really, it's a good point. It's really interesting. You know, that's like the thing in these, in these books 
you know, people love to like look for hints of the mating bond and like we get a lot of them here and I actually do really love them. I love when Farrah is sick at the beginning. The only thing that like makes her feel better, she like goes and like to the window and like looks at the night sky. Like that just like gives me chills. And then she thinks too, like, I rarely went outside at night. Usually I was so tired from hunting that I just wanted to sleep. But I wonder, but I wonder if some part of me knew what was waiting for me, that I'd never be a gentle grower of things or someone who burned like fire, but that I'd be quiet and enduring and as faceted as the night. That I would have beauty for those who knew where to look. And if people didn't bother to look, but only to fear it, then I didn't particularly care for them anyway. So it's like, I love all of those like foreshadowing moments, but like it, it would be interesting like to just not have that be on the table, yeah. but it's here. So we have to deal with it. <laughs> I think the illusion of it to being like her home is my favorite because like yeah. when she tells the bone cover that there was like a thread that she just yanked on when she was, there was, there was only one thing in the darkness when she was about, when she was dead and she pulled on that thread. And the fact that she looked for home, she wanted to go home and she followed the, that thread home. And then it, that, thread was the mating bond and Reese at the end of it. I, I like the allusion to it being home. I mean, yeah. it's still yeah. you know a mating bond, but it is sort of a nice way of phrasing it. I also like the way that um, like when Reese tells her that um, like he's been having dreams about her for years, like just catching little glimpses um, that she, when she painted those drawers that he had maybe like, or she had gotten into his head a little bit because he didn't intentionally send her that vision of the night sky, but she still had gotten a vision of the night sky as she was painting. And also just his years under the mountain when he catched those little glimpses of her and just knowing that she existed somewhere out there, thinking that he was never, ever going to meet her. He had no idea who she was, didn't know what she looked like, but that just knowing she existed out there somewhere helped him get through it. That's all that, that works for me. Very, yeah. very much. It, uh, yeah. <laughs> too much. Too much work for me. Do we have any other big pair of Reese thoughts? We're going to talk a ton in soon. And I think also a little bit more in spoilers too. But who, before we get to like superlatives here, do we want to talk instead about um, some of our other characters here, the inner circle and the sisters. And we talked about Lucian a lot, but I think like the biggest thing i guess in this book is like we were introduced to inner circle but like we don't really get a ton about them and their their stories yet but i think the most interesting side character stuff is is with the sisters in a lot of ways because they play like a big part in the plot of like opening up their house to the inner circle to come in and like be the envoy for the mortal queens i really i would like a lot of of that stuff too. And then obviously the end is like very Elena Nesta heavy mm-hmm. here, but I'm going to get this out of the way now. So it's few and far between when I praise Elaine. So I don't particularly love Elaine for not, I just don't think she has a ton of, um, personality. Yeah. We don't, we haven't gotten a lot. And this is, you know, I guess some slight spoilers for like Lex several books in the series, but there's still just not a lot there for me and her, but like, I really like that. She, despite being engaged to someone who hates the Fae, she has an iron ring, which like they think can like ward against the Fae, but she immediately like, clears out the house and like says fair, fair gave and gave for years. Let us help her help others. So like, I love that moment for her. It's great. And then, like, again, this is the pro-Nasta 
pod. Yeah. So like, obviously I'm deeply obsessed with everything about her. And like what I really like about this book too, and it's again, interesting to read as I, we said last time, spoiler alert, like she's not a super fan fave in a lot of ways. She, again, from Feyre's POV, like I think she comes out looking pretty good. Like she does. I keep waiting to get to that, like that Nesta that everybody hates, but I'm still not seeing it. Cause I'm like, you know, and Farah has a complete understanding of Nesta in the way that she works, like noting how, you know, she, she warns Cassian because she sees like their bond growing and she, she tells him like, don't expect her to love free freely. Like more does don't expect this or that for her from her. Uh, but know that she's got these walls up because she feels too much. Vera has a very deep understanding of Nesta and the way that she works. And, and Vera is a personally, offended by the way that nesta acts so for me like i'm i i don't i don't know why other people are are like offended on Farah's behalf if Farah herself isn't offended like that's just how nesta is but i do i do god i did not realize when i before i started this reread that like the the nessian stuff is so strong right away yeah so early it really is like it's so and it's there and like he's like sparring with her too and he like yells at her basically and calls her out for like everything that he did for Feyre which pardon me I said this to you guys off air like I wonder how much of that is just him like sparring with her and like trying to Cassian in in this book too one of the things that shocked me in reread is like he's just like the human diffuser like he's so good at like diffusing everyone. Like we talked about wrestling in the in the mud with mm-hmm. uh, Reese after the mating bomb, but he like knows that Reese is like on edge and he has to like take that edge off. And the only way to do it is like beat the you know, shit out of each other in the mud. For <laughs> but like, you know, I just realized it's like what what people like what they note about Ronan in the Raven Cycle later is that he is offensive with a purpose, purpose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. like he does it just to snap tensions. And I think that's exactly what Cassian does with Nesta. Um, Cause he sees yeah. like, she's got all of that anger, all that rage, and she doesn't know where to put it. And he offers, he essentially offers himself up as a punching bag, um, intentionally kind of poking that bear to get her to be able to release that tension and to vent and, and to work it out of her system in a way that's not hurting other people. And I really understand the impulse to like, okay, if you love someone, you care for someone and someone has like treated them poorly, you are mad at them and you might have it you, you just you don't want to you're mad at them essentially but i like what reese does in this book with regards to that is he like <laughs> says to farah like is it wrong that like i find it really like hard to like be with them because i'm like upset about how they treated you in the past that's like a fair way to handle yeah. that i think versus especially because um, it's both of them it's yeah. Nesta and Elaine that are responsible for letting Farah down for so many years. Yeah. So anyway, I just I I like how they both kind of come to bat here. I love Nesta calling out the human queens for like just being terrible hypocrites. Like you're gonna let us all die. Leads to a fabulous Nessian moment where Cassian's like, "I will protect you. Like it will be my <laughs> honor." He like wipes a tear from her face. Does he wipe a tear from her face? Yeah, he does. <laughs> It's so much it's just like a fever dream of mine. <laughs> yeah. It was just like on fire reading this entire book. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's really hmm, good stuff. Hmm. 
I was one of those people that didn't really like Nesta, even in this book. And to be quite honest, it took me on first reads until Silver Flames to actually really like Nesta as a character and understand her. But I, I do agree with both of you that when you read this, like, Feyre is not like resentful like I was the resentful person and I think when you really reflect on uh, Nessa's motives and just how angry she was there's a there's a bonus chapter to this book um that's from Nesta and Cassine's point of view and it's it's lovely for many reasons but there's a quote that really made me reckon with how I viewed Nesta in Akatar, and it's basically really quick, the rage that had consumed her so that she wanted them all to starve just to see if their useless father would bother to save them. And then little Feyre had stepped in and Nesta had hated her. And I just, it really clicked for me just exactly why. It doesn't excuse her at all, but it really explained to me that it wasn't, because I sort of thought that they just like really didn't like Feyre, that Nesta like didn't like her and just liked Elaine so much more because Elaine was like lovely and like flowers and but it wasn't that at all it was just this resentfulness and this rage that she can't the fair had the audacity to step in when their father should yeah yeah exactly and so i'm especially i think for me personally as someone that didn't appreciate nesta as much until later even though i did like these casting moments with her i and that really held a grudge against her for a while rereading and really thinking about it and processing and reflecting and like reckoning with the fact that a lot of my perceptions of it because we're in Farah's point of view again made me view it a different way so I've I've really warmed up to Nesta and I think it it took like rereading and reflecting rather than just my first go around when I was like Cinderella like these sisters suck I mean like (laughs) whatever Elaine but yeah, yeah. Well, we're all united on Elaine. <laughs> For yeah, sure. Elaine. No, no offense to Elaine. We're like getting. It's not even like I hate her. I just nothing her. You no, know? yeah, yeah. That's the thing. With it's kind of like the trick that like man, you see better plays with Jacqueline Lynch and the Raven Cycle, where it's like you only are ever getting his brother's POV, and it's like his brother doesn't like him, and so therefore his friends don't like him, and then their POVs they don't like Jacqueline, and then it's like oh wait, no shit, like. Jacqueline's been working to keep Ronan alive and loves him very deeply like this whole time. It's kind of like that in a lot of ways. So it's like, yeah, that's why it's, I think, really helpful then once we get in her POV, which we ultimately really get all of in Silver Flames. But Corinne, I really didn't need you to hit me with the Declan bat right now. I'm sorry. It's so <laughs> You know how though. I am. Yeah. I, if you've never listened to our Raven Cycle coverage, just do it just to listen to Tasha on lunch. <laughs> But yeah, no, so I really like that. And then also, this is a moment that for me is one of my favorite moments of this book, in which I have a lot of favorite moments. But Nesta pointing that finger at the King of Hybern as she goes into the cauldron is so ominous and badass and scary. And I, I love the note that he even like has the good sense to look kind of shaken up by that. Like just this this human girl, just she's got that, like that's her fucking power, man. She's yeah. terrifying and I love her. It's so, so good. <laughs> it's just like, it's chilling. The whole end of this book is yeah. the first time I read it, I was like, you have got to be fucking <laughs> kidding. This fucking guy again, he's back. Okay, it was so tense. Why did Hera ever think that letter was going to work? First of all, it was such a bad plan. Here's why it's bad for several reasons. Number one, 
Girl, you could not read or write the last challenge. <laughs> oh my god, I didn't realize that. That's Why so would you think you actually sent this letter first? First of all, second of all, like you were a prisoner in his home. Why is he just gonna be like, I left? Like I'm good. That's not gonna work. So, like the surprise of that. One of our um common refrains in our group text when we're talking about these books listeners is how everyone in these books are really bad at their jobs and like that's kind of like one of the fairest bad at her jobs it's like you're the like you got the insight on Tamlin here girl but like do you do you and then we've got to call out as I'll let you go Jesse Azrael I swear to god we're told that he's this like great spy is the best spy but the whole book they're always like Ezreal what do you know about this and he's like I don't know I haven't heard anything <laughs> Ezreal tell me about the, the the human queens I haven't heard anything Ezreal <laughs> tell me they're about the not magic how can yeah. you not get into the human court he goes Ezreal tell me about like how the spring court's doing and he's like I haven't heard anything we don't know how Tamlin's doing like Tamlin is clearly like not doing well like they should have been monitoring it like like what is the spring the summer court feel about there's like a billion other courts like like <laughs> he doesn't know anything and then like literally do you think when Az is supposed to be on the job he's just like at the local david busters like at the arcade all the shadows work he <laughs> he's like they're not gonna sh- know if i'm actually doing it my shadows, my shadows. <laughs> like literally hybrid says he's like this was such an easy trap i can't believe you all you idiots all <laughs> fell for it like even hybrid says it and i'm sitting here with the reader like this is so obviously a trap. Like, and like, Farrah like, thinks too, like, they've been planning so well. Like, there's no guards. <laughs> this is so great. Yeah, I was going to say, in Azrael's defense, they are all equally pretty bad at their jobs. They all well, are, yeah. but it's just every time they keep being like, Azrael, what's the news about the queens? He's like, what's the news about He just doesn't know anything ever. Literally. And then, like, later, like, spoiler alert, like, it continues and like Lucian all of a sudden knows everything. It's like he's the spy master. Yeah. <laughs> I love Resand, the most hey, powerful. I, yeah, I, know. I love them all. Like I'm making fun of them all because I love them. Resand, the most powerful High Lord. Valeris, best wards. No one's ever <laughs> coming through the wards until they come through the wards. But don't worry. We've upped the wards. The protection is higher. It's never going to happen again. What? <laughs> <laughs> whole god damn time reese why there's like so many there's like ash arrows and then there's these like fancy metal chains that suck away the power like you know once you the problem is once you create an all-powerful being you have to find ways to make them less powerful because there's ways they can get out of everything right so sarah kind of you know, gets herself in a hole with a, like a lot of her like language about the best yeah. spy master, the best, <laughs> the, yeah, more the most powerful is. creature that's ever existed yeah, ever. And like, <laughs> like that's not a good story, you know. No, so yeah, oh, that's so funny. Uh, we love Walt, and then like, don't even get me started on more. I am oh, the truth. The, the more again. <laughs> this is like in spoiler alert. We still don't fucking know what that power means. What is that? And someone says, no. like, you're so bad at lying more. Like, because she's the truth, the Morgan. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Meanwhile, oh, God. And like, yeah, so. She's supposed to be more powerful than Cassian and Asriel, but I have seen none of it. No. These kids are, like, they've been alive 500 years, and they're, like, still dealing with the same petty drama shit. Oh <laughs> like, I don't God. know if, like, being immortal makes you, like, 
like every like little you things mature like, slower yeah I, I like I used to think that like being immortal would make you like all know like like that you could rise above like petty bullshit but I think it's like the reverse like you just have more time to like stew in your petty to bullshit. hold those grudges the triangle between as and Cassian and more like I still I've read these books multiple times I still don't understand what's going on what is their dynamic what is happening other understand. than as is in love with more Cassian is like is a, a buffer yeah, what is but this? yet he's still like I don't it's then in it that bonus no chapter that Jesse referenced he is like weirdly jealous of like of like as like of more with Asriel but like don't you're the one who thought re- with Cassian like what is happening do we even know that Asriel was in love with more like we just have other people saying that he was in love with her I don't know I'm I feel very weird about the whole thing. It's, it's very it's not very it's, clear. It's dumb. Well, the thing with Sarah, and we'll, we'll maybe we'll get more into this in spoilers, certainly in future books, is that she has changed things over time. I think I might have talked about this last week. Like Sarah painting the stars on the dress night star, night sky and the dressers was very clear recent foreshadowing. But the reason Nesta painted flames was because in orig- originally in the first book, Sarah thought she was going to put Nesta with Lucian, and flames are like the autumn court power. That's not what happened. You could not tell by reading this book. Uh, Cassian is being set up in, in this book as love interest for Nesta. So, and Lucian is Elaine's mate. So that obviously changed. So you can't like look too closely at like some of these things that she does because she could. Yeah, there's a little bit of retconning going on in the future. All the time. At all times. Constantly. You can't like, there's theorizing only gets you so far. And that's why it's like bashing my head against a wall when we're trying to like think about where the rest of the series is going to go. Because she changes her mind a lot. So who the hell knows what's going on with those three is the point in the story. I don't even know if Sarah knows anymore. Because we still don't know. <laughs> Very unclear. Man. So, Big, we want to do like superlatives again before we go into a little bit of a spoiler section here. Yeah. I mean, the end of this book is great. The High Lady reveal. That was like one thing we didn't talk about, too. How Tamlin's like, well, there's no such thing as a High Lady. And it's like, fuck yeah, there is. <laughs> okay, Jan. Yeah, so that's so great. silly. Sure, Why would Jane. he say that? And Ryzen's like, we'll try to talk about that later. Yeah. Oh, uh, anywho. All right, let's do some superlatives because we're just going to talk a lot about the romance. Good thing we save soon for last. Let's start with favorite quote as we always do. We all have the same one. Hello, favorite darling. <laughs> I mean, the man knows how to make an entrance. I think if it's Baz's entrance in Carry On, and then I think this one is like right under that. Yeah, coming in at the wedding, just it's love great. a drama queen. Yeah, Jesse, what else do you have for us? So I, I I think because I filled this out first, I grabbed like the two like quote unquote famous quotes that if you type in like a Court of Thorns and Roses, like like there's stickers, there's like a lot of of those. Um, there's a, a the quote from Moore. There are good days and hard days for me, even now. Don't let the hard days win, which is just like a very good sticker <laughs> slogan. Um, and then, like, I'm looking at my water bottle right now, and I have a sticker from our friend Martha that she made, like, for us <laughs> um, that says, To the people who look at the stars and wish, and then to the stars who listen and the dreams that are answered, which is just I like, love that. Beautiful. I think it's the most famous quote from the entire yeah. series. In yeah. my mind, that always happens on Starfall, just because they're talking about stars. And then... Doesn't it happen in the Starfall. summer court? Yeah, it's yeah. in the summer court. 
I'm surprised every single time when it happens. When like, I reread this, so I was like, oh, this, this is happening now. Oh, oh, yeah. It like always surprises me. Let's see here. Change what quotes. Yeah. I have, I was not a pet, not a doll, not an animal. I was a survivor and I was strong. I would not be weak or helpless again. I would not, could not be broken, tamed. I love that. I have, I have yeah. that one too. It's when she's like scaling the chimney at the, um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, when she's in the in the weavers yeah. hut or whatever. Yeah. That's such a good scene. Free sending her in there for her engagement ring. Just, it's so good. When she I think Reese tells her, like, oh, if something goes wrong, just shout, you know, shout down the bond or whatever. And uh she's like, What are you like? I'm supposed to just like scream at my hand. And he's like, You could try rubbing it out on certain body parts and I might come faster. And then he dips. Like he says <laughs> that, and then he's like, <laughs> he runs away. I love it. That's an example of how a lot of times Sarah writes things that like it's cheesy, but I don't mm-hmm. care because I fucking love them so much that I don't care even that that is just like the worst pickup line I've ever heard. Reese. It's like, so I bad, don't but, care. But what makes that scene so good is like he drops this ridiculous innuendo that he knows is ridiculous innuendo. Yeah. And then he just like dips. He's like, yeah. he just vanishes and like, it's just, it's so silly and it's really, I don't know. I love it. I yes, I had the Weaver one too. I also love this one. I don't know why this one always sticks out for me. It's just like the phrasing of it really speaks to me. I did not mind stepping out of the shadows, did not mind even being in the shadows to begin with, so long as he was with me. My friend through so many dangers who had fought for me when no one else would, even myself. They refer to each other as friends. It yeah. It hurts. I yeah. Love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you have other ones, Jesse? No, I mean I just had like I think it, I think I just wrote like silly ones down after. Uh, I really like when he's telling her about the mating bond and he says, I felt Cassian's spirit beside me in that moment and could have sworn I heard him say, if you don't marry her, you stupid prick, I will. <laughs> and it's like about just when he's like sees her for the first time and using her like ingenuity. And I don't know. I just thought it was like a funny. I, I love that too. I like every time I read these books over and over and over again, my love for Cassian like skyrockets because he we, as is still like a mystery in a lot of ways, Cassie's just like the best friend at all times to all of them. And it's like so good. And him and Farrah's friendship, which we get the like early seeds of here, it's just like really special. Like, and so I love that too, though, in that scene where Reese says that and she's like, uh, I reminded you of your best friend. He's like, I felt like I was like looking at Cassie. And she's like, No. He was like, No, I just, I felt like his spirit there. And I'm like, I love that. Cassian, a good boy, our good himbo boy. We Such a himbo. Um, all right, character and arc. I mean, I think we all the same. Mm-hmm. Those two. Reese is our favorite character. Yeah, and then uh, Sarah for arc. Yeah, yes. easy, easy choice. Easy, easy, easy. And then soon. All right, so alternate. Yeah, so. I'm going to go first and say, like, if I could read you all of chapter 54 right now, I would. Speaking of swag for this fandom, chapter 55, which is the sex chapter, gets all the merch, like stickers. I have a sticker that says chapter 55. Like, it's great. Like, it's fine. I have, I don't actually think she's really particularly great at writing sex scenes, (laughs) but that's chapter, it's still pretty hot. But it's chapter 54, the big moment of reveal from recent of every single like little thing that he did to like on the path to find her that like just um absolutely staggers me but this this is 
this is what really gets to me. And I said that this was actually my favorite swoon in our spoiler section of the first episode because of the, the payoff of it here. And this is what it is. Um, this is, he's talking about Cal and Maya in the first book when he goes and like saves her from the guys who are going to assault her. I debated slaughtering them then and there, but then they shoved you and I just moved. I started speaking without knowing what I was saying, only that you were there and I was touching you and he loosed a shuddering breath. And then it's like in italics, so she's thinking, there you are. I've been looking for you. His first words to me, not a lie at all, not a threat to keep those fairies away. Thank you for finding her for me. I had the vague feeling of the world slipping out from under my feet like sand washing away from the shore. And honestly, like, that's how I felt reading that chapter because I was like, the long pond from Sarah Timas, like it just plays out so well. So that's one of my favorite moments of my favorite chapter of the series. I'll see you guys, Scott. You, I breathe, not taking my eyes from the musicians playing so skillfully that even the diners had set down their forks in the cafes nearby. You sent that music into my cell. Why? Resan's voice was hoarse because you were breaking and I couldn't find another way to save you. <laughs> just too much. Jesse. So it's kind of we're kind of like going in order here because mine is also from like that similar chapter when he's explaining and he says, then I learned your name. Hearing you say it, it was like an answer to a question I've been asking for 500 years. Right. It's so good. This is actually my only other one I have because you guys filled this out first and you guys have a lot of good ones. So I'll just chime in <laughs> as you go. But this is a very hot scene where he's like kneeling in front of her and uh, is strapping knives to her. I think it's when they're going to the prison for the first time. And he goes, or another way to the Weaver's Cottage, I think. I'm your huntress and thief. His hand slid down to cut the backs of my knees as he said it with a roguish grin. You're my salvation, Pharaoh. And it's just like, oh, it's so hot. And, and you then learn afterwards, you know, that he has these tattoos on his knees that you will like kneel before no besides like his court and, and his king his crown and his yeah and, but then his mate his his high lady i just so he's like already doing that like he's already willing to do that and it just means a lot to me but it's also hot Bantry. it is yeah. yeah this is when they're talking about oh this is like when they're talking right before they go to the court of nightmares why don't you want me to see that because you've only started to look at me like i'm not a monster and i can't stomach the idea of Anything you see tomorrow being beneath that mountain, putting you back into that place where I found you. And I love this because this is super, I mean, we've, we know that Sarah J. Mass is a huge fan of Buffy and this is very reminiscent of a line. So Corinne and Jesse are watching Buffy right now. They are, we're, we're almost at the end of season three. <laughs> uh, so this line has not come up yet, but it will. And it is very good. It's one of my favorite scenes in the show, but specifically that, you know, you've only just started to look at me like I'm not a monster. Is it Spike? I'm not saying anything. <laughs> it's obviously Spike. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I love you. I said again, I had endured say the words in my head and I'd endure every second of it over again so I could find you. And if war comes again, we'll face it together. I won't let them take me from you and I won't let them take you from me either. Is I, what I love about this so much is um, that it's not only that, oh, fuck. Not, I was just about to cheer too. We got, we got Jesse. It's not only that she won't let like her be taken from him. It's that 
she won't let he won't she won't let them take him from her either and it's just like how equal they are as like a couple and it's not oh my god <laughs> it's nothing i'd cry but it's just it's oh. re- yeah it really got me oh. i love them so much it's beautiful beautiful <laughs> i'm so happy i'm not the only one who's cried real tears on this podcast never cried like this before i'm like oh god i loved it it was beautiful no it, that's like a beautiful moment between the it two is. uh god Deja. all right so this is a starfall bits of stardust glowed on his lips as he pulled away as i stared up at him breathless while he smiled the smile the world would likely never see, the smile he'd given up for the sake of his people, his lands. He, he said softly, I am very glad I met you, Farah. And that's another one that's like, like when they we, they talk about how important their friendship with each other is, that feels very much like that. And I just, I love it so much that there's this just kind of devastatingly romantic couple and they have so many good romance moments, but that they also equally appreciate their friendship with each other, I think is so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and so my next one is kind of in a similar vein. This isn't a romance swoony moment. It's more of a friendship swoony moment. It happens right after Farah and uh, accepts the mating bond and they show up back in front of their, their friends, their family, the inner circle. And it says, as one, they stood as one, they looked at me and as one, they bowed. It was Amran who said, we will serve and protect. They each place to hand over their heart. And it's just like a really beautiful moment of, all of them just being a family. And I, I just, I love it so much. I'm going to skip that one actually. All right. No, so don't. Many. I love that. That's a good one. I'll read it if you want. Yeah. Why don't you take it? You, okay. you don't have that much. I'm thinking he said, following the flick of my tongue over my bottom lip, that I look at you and I feel like I'm dying. Like I can't breathe. I'm thinking that I want you so badly. I can't concentrate half the time I'm around you. And this room is too small for me to properly bed you, especially with the wings. I just really love that scene too. I reread that one a lot where they're in the inn. It's really hot. It also has one of my favorite lines. He says like, something he's like you know patience fair right? he's like and then he says and when i look you i want you split on the table like my own personal feast which is another example of a line that i personally it shouldn't work to saying it but like i love it in this context so much you're king you dropped your crown um oh and i also i highlighted that too because um like specifically that part of the quote that I look like you and I feel like I'm dying is also very reminiscent of a Buffy quote where she's talking to Angel. She says, when you kiss me, I want to die. And I love catching these, like, I feel like intentional, like references or pulls from Buffy. I think it's fun. Yeah. There are references, like little stuff like that. Not, not, not like from pulls from lots of different things. And it's really mm-hmm. fun to like spot them. Like, sorry, this is just like a small tangent, but something she does in both throne of glass and, Akatar is there's a in in Judaism Sarah is, is Jewish and in in Judaism you don't leave flowers at graves you leave rocks or little stones because flowers die but rocks are are more permanent um and it's a really lovely thing that I've always personally loved um and she borrows that tradition in both Akatar and um Throne of Glass and it's just like a, a tiny little thing that she's pulled clearly and um I just love it <laughs> Uh, okay, so this oh, is 
This is my last one. And this is something that I never clocked is a swoon moment until this is like my third or fourth time reading this book. And um, it's the letter that Reese writes and he writes it even before they've accepted the mating bond and he's writing to the, the Queens to meet. Um, and he says, I write to you not as a high Lord, but as a male in love with a woman who was once human, I write to you to beg you to act quickly, to save her people, to save my own. I write to you. So one day we might know true peace. So I might one day be able to live in a world where the woman I love may visit her family without fear of hatred and reprisal, a better world. And it's just a really lovely thing that Reese does he's this you know all-powerful you know high lord or whatever who has this reputation of being like the devil essentially he he just lays his heart bare like that yeah it's so beautiful and it's such a sacrifice and it's something that you know we keep harping on the differences between Tamlin and Reese and but they start off sort of the same they're sons of these like jerk high lords who are both immensely powerful and likely going to be high lord themselves and when they both and they both become high lord under horrible circumstances, basically when their families like kill each other, and Tamlin doesn't want, and neither of them want to be high lord. None of them want that responsibility, and Tamlin just lets it crush him. Reese says, "I didn't want this, I, but I have it, and I'm going to take it, and I'm going to make something good with it." And that's what he does, and that's what he wants to do, and it's just like a really important moment for his character, I think. And it really shows you like the type of person or fairy or whatever that he is. Um, And I don't think I ever really like recognize it as a swoon moment until this read. So it's totally swoony. Yeah. It's gorgeous. All right. I've got two more aware of every breath, every movement I sat in his lap, his hands gently braced my hips as I studied his face. And now I want you to know Resand, that I love you. I want you to know his lips trembled and I brushed away the tear that escaped down his cheek. I want you to know, I whispered, that I am broken and healing, but every piece of my heart belongs to you. And I am honored, honored to be your mate. That's when she's like accepting the mating bond and it is. Now I'm going to cry because like when Reese cries is when I cry. And like he cries so much that scene. (laughs) Like it's too much for me. Like, we love emotional vulnerability in a man. Like, we love it, and it's great. And he does cry, like, all through that scene. It's so, it's so sweet. Like, when the part where it's, like, and it, I always, because I've, I think I've reread chapter 54, maybe more than I've ever read any chapter of a book before. And the point where it's, like, he pauses, like, and then I, like, heard your neck break, and, like, he's crying. I, like, I can't even talk about it now. I, again, I would reread that whole chapter into the podcast if it was legal. For me to <laughs> it's like go read it again right now because it's just it overwhelms me. Yeah. Okay. Your last one. Um, Ooh, I, I have to include a Nessian yeah. moment in here. So this is uh, Cassian. Five hundred years ago, I fought on battlefields not far from this house. I fought beside human and fairy alike, blood beside them. I will stand on that battlefield again, Nesta Artron, to protect this house, your people. I can think of no better way to end my existence than to defend those who need it most. I watched a tear slide down Nesta's cheek, and I watched as Cassian reached up a hand to wipe it away. She did not flinch from his touch. He has met her two times at this point. I would like to reflect. <laughs> <laughs> it's like too much for me. Too much. Yeah, so it's very swoony. Can I like give one anti-swoon? Because this line, every time I'm reading chapter 54 and 55, pulls me out of it momentarily to a more like, this is a cheesy line, Sarah, that like I actually can't abide by. 
It's when Reese paints the arrow on her stomach and says, lest you forget where this is going to end. I hate it so much. I hate it so much. I've never <laughs> on the podcast how much I hate it. Thank you. Also, Farah, are you a good painter? We don't know. <laughs> you a good painter. Yeah, my my favorite like fandom inside joke probably across all fandoms is is that uh Farah, despite the text, everything in the text pointing to her being a, a very talented artist, uh the entire fandom has just agreed uh for the first time ever that um that Farah is actually a very bad artist and everybody is just humoring her. The it's painting. never not funny. The painting too is an example of just like how sometimes some things in these books for as much as we love them are super weird. Painting all of their eyes in the cabin is it's so weird, fucking yeah. weird, Farah. It's like serial killer shit. Like, <laughs> why? <laughs> so they could watch her. It's like leading to the bedroom too. It's a weird choice on so yeah. many levels. I can tell something. Amarin's and then Morris like, no, paint both of us so the boys know. And then she's like, no, I'll paint the boys too. It's very weird. Something Sarah, I noticed that she did in Throne of Glass too, is her main character like also is an amazing piano player. And I think that it's something that she like throws in like, yes, my, my female protagonists are like super badass and awesome, but they also like are artistic and appreciate music. Yeah. Yeah. We talked to about how Farrah thinks like, oh yeah, like I can sell my art here. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I can pay Reese back with the money that I get from selling my art. <laughs> the confidence. This girl, it's like, girl, you've only painted a dresser one time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is where we have lost it. All right. Um, spoiler section. <laughs> spoiler section, yes. All right. There will be a musical cue, and then you can come back. Uh, we're going to talk about some things going forward to the rest of the books in the series. All righty. Um, <laughs> so a lot of this is, is for me at least, it's Nesta-related. Farrah thinks about Cassie and Nessa, like seeing them kind of sp- verbally spar with each other. And she thinks part of me shuddered at the havoc the two would wreak if they decided to stop fighting. Very true. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, um, thinking about Nessa, I think she and Amarin would be fast friends. They were for a minute. Um, I think she would like Valaris despite herself. And I think Elaine, Elaine would like it too, though she'd probably cling to Asriel just to have some peace and quiet. Yeah, so let's pause there briefly because like, I want to talk about like the Jesse's ship wars face. briefly. <laughs> So, like, as I said in the main section here, like, Sarah changes her mind a lot. And I feel like there is a lot of, like, clear as an Emmeline um, stuff in this book. But writes for Gwen. Like, we love her. Yeah, so, I don't, I'm not going to be on your Accord of Silver Flames podcast. So, mm-hmm. this is my, this is my moment to, like, full on ship Gwen and Azrael. And Lucian, Lucian and whatever Elaine if he wants her and (laughs) And whatever uh, okay so there are a lot of hints that Elaine and Azrael are gonna be there's like two there's like that line that you read and then like she turns to him at the dinner is like you can fly and he gets like shy around her Mm -hmm. these are like the two moments 
And then there are a little bit more in Akawar, but there's more in a crust, a court of frosters in Starlight. And I was convinced. I was like, okay, I don't, I don't love it. Those three like bad brothers are hooking up with the 17, 20 year old Argeron sisters. Fine, whatever, <laughs> Sarah, like we can do it. I, number one, I don't think that's her like MO, like that, like that neat, like matching up especially now that I'm reading Throat of Glass, like doesn't really seem like something that she would do. But anyway, I was like, this is fine. I, I, you know, I want Lucen to be happy. Like I really do. And like, he's miserable, like miserable. And it's awful. Like even you have that line of like him giving the cloak to Elaine and her like shirking away from it, which is like really gut-wrenching to read, even though like I understand like she just went through a really traumatic situation. So I was like... (sighs) Okay, we know that the mating bond, like, to break a mating bond is, like, the one of the worst things that you can do. Like, yeah. the, like that you go mad, the person that, they say that. Like, they say, like, you go mad. Which isn't something that I think is going to happen to Lucian. But I was like, fine. Sarah wants to give Lucian this, like, beautiful princess story with princess, one of the, you know, the queen that's cursed. Bassa. Fine. I'll roll with it, Basset. I'll roll with it. But then in Silver Flames, I, I think she changed her mind. I... I, I think she changed her mind because, be, yeah, because you get this, like, insinuation that Vasa and Jurian are, like, bantering back and forth, forth and, like, are a thing. Plus, they're both humans, and Lucian is high fae. So. I hope all three of them are getting it in together. I mean, yeah. comes around. Really, that's just. But then we have the beautiful, wonderful, amazing Gwen. Yeah. 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 You don't just introduce her. Like and have her, yeah, be like symbolically the opposite of Asriel as a, you know, um, it's light singer. Is yeah. that what they're, yeah. And he's the shadow singer. Like you don't pair lightness and darkness without that being a very intentional like thing that you're going to carry ribbon. on. He's the ribbon now. It's just mm-hmm. like, yeah. and then you have this like bonus chapter where like him and Elaine almost kiss and it's like, fine, whatever. But then they don't for root, whatever whatever Reese whatever I whatever I don't care about that conversation and then you have like him giving you know wanting to give Elaine the necklace and describing it as this like beautiful wonderful you know like thing and then describing Gwen's smile is that like that's how she ended the chapter I just there's like I'm very frustrated about this but I think Sarah changed her mind so that's why I think there's just like a lot of evidence about I think she changed her mind and I really feel like the more I reflect on that bonus chapter that the moment of like near kiss between Az and Elaine is like her on a bone to mm-hmm. the Alreal shippers because it feels to me like you're acknowledging like yeah I laid this groundwork but I'm giving you another reason for it the reason being loneliness that they're both have and they're both feeling so I don't know if Elaine is gonna end up with Lucian. I want Lu- number one. I want Lucian to be happy. Yes. Number two. I want as in Gwen to be a thing. Elaine, mm-hmm. I just don't really care what's gonna happen to you. <laughs> Elaine, you're going to be my self insert character for hooking <laughs> <laughs> yeah. up with Lucian. Oh yes, there we go. But yeah, so I, I totally agree. I tried to do a lot of because there's a lot in my bonus chapter two about his shadows. So I was trying to pay a lot of attention to his shadows in this book, and I don't know what the fuck the shadows are doing. <laughs> No one knows what the shadows are doing. Does As know? Because obviously they're giving him bad intel or not enough <laughs> intel or something. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't understand. But no, I agree. I think there's some nice moments here for sure. We get more coming in Aquar for sure between them. But I just, I don't want it. I don't think it's where it's going anymore. 
I mean, it's hard again, but that's the type of writer Sarah J. Moss is. Like, we, this is not like a Maggie Seawater series where we're going back and like picking up all the breadcrumbs she left us along the way. Like, Sarah doesn't think that way. And then I think then to pivot to my other big thing, my CTJ, you also have noted here in the spoiler section of like how Sarah doesn't think about fandom and fans in the same way that I think other writers do. Is that like this, this Rusan stuff? comparing this book and everything he says in this book to his behavior in a court of silver flames in not telling Farah that she's gonna die. Giving- it's really weird because you see how much importance he puts in honesty with each other and, and trust and autonomy. And, and I mean, you can sort of say, I'm going to read this quote and, um, you can kind of see it as like maybe she's setting some precedent here, but um, he says, I'll admit that I'm terrified at the thought of my mate being pregnant with so many enemies around us. I'm terrified of what I might do if you're pregnant and threatened or harmed. And, and then you go back and you think about his behavior in uh, A Court of Silver Flames toward Nesta when Nesta reveals the, the lie that he's been telling or the, the lie yeah. of omission um, and how he blows it. He, he like threatens to kill her immediately. Yeah. Um, so you see that like she's, she's setting up this thing where like, oh, because they're animal, you know, the fae, are they animals or are they fucking these evolved creatures? I don't know. But they, uh, you know, he, she's established that this behavior when their mate is pregnant is a thing that can happen. So I guess that's, that's that. But then like, she also wrote these things. These are things I specifically highlighted as, as I was going through having red silver flames. But you will forgive me if I make assessments based on your current physical condition, to which Fair responds, I'll be the person who decides that, to which I responded in all capital letters in the notes, come on, a court of silver flames race. Like, <laughs> like that's literally a thing that Fair said to you. And then she also said this, you know, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear you explain how you assume that you knew best that I couldn't handle it. I didn't do that. I don't want to hear you tell me that you decided I was to be kept in the dark while your friends knew while you all decided what was right for me. That's what they all fucking do. So like, yeah, it's, it's very not. frustrating. We've talked about this a lot online and my point about how Sarah isn't thinking about fan and fandoms. She's not the most um, intentional writer. She's just not. She needed plot reasons to do plot things in A Court of Silver Flames and didn't think that what we would all notice that you like completely fucking changed your like main character and why we all love these books. Like it's kind of, it makes me very, very mad. I love A Court of Silver Flames because I love Nesta and Cassie so, so, so much. I have to do a lot of work. I'm like Pharaoh with the the walls up, my mental shields. Like I have to like cut out that part of Resand because like I cannot accept that can inside of him. I was very happy to reread this book and discover that I still love him so much because I've been mad at him for five months since that book came out. If I'm being quite honest, it really did a number on me. I was like, how dare, like how dare. So I'm just going to put up that mental shield and like pretend that part of the plot of that book does not happen because it just makes me so mad because he's literally, we talked about this three books ago, Reese, we talked yeah. about all of this. So and I think what just, makes it worse is oh. like, because we're not in Ferris POV or Reese's POV in that moment, we don't see the fallout from that. We don't see, right. as Ferris says later, like, oh yeah, I, you know, you know, Ferris kicked his ass. I want, I want to see that. I want to see him deal with the consequences of, 
that stupid fucking decision to not talk to her about that. In the other bonus chapter for A Court of Silver Flames, it's a recent fair or a discussion about they're trying to figure out the baby name. Um, and she still doesn't know at that point. But like she says that she can like see that something's think she can sense that something's wrong with him, but like he'll come to her in her own time. That's always been what their relationship is about. No, it's not. Your relationship is about mutual respect and choice that you like give each other. And like stop retconning your characters there. Stop ruining them. So yeah, I just have to like really not pay a lot of attention to it. Um, I just need to like let it out here because to to read those types of things that like are literally in this book and why we love this book is very, very disheartening to then read the course of the plans. So just stop writing Reese. Like just, just he needs to be set. like take these characters away, put them somewhere else because we'll get to court of um Boston Starlight too, because I don't like that book. I did watch a live with her where she basically said, like, if I have the plot, like, I'm like, she's like, I'm obsessed with all these characters. Like, if I have another story, I'm going to, like, tell it. So I don't know. She's like very busy right now. So I don't. Yeah. That that was that was my kind of those were that was my big spoiler thing. I was just like, "Um." and uh, any other like real big spoiler thoughts? No. Um, not a spoiler thought, but just like stuff that I was paying attention to. Like Reese goes like in on the description of the blood rite, which is just something when I read the first time, I was like, do do like, oh, that sounds horrifying, but do do like yeah. whatever big strong men doing it, I don't really care. Do do And then like to get it with like my baby Gwen in in a court of silver flames, like it made me want like it was just like very harrowing to read um like the description of it and then I, I don't think, you know, Sarah was the, like, I think in the the notes, the author's note or the acknowledgements for Silver Flame, Sarah mentioned that she was just like scribbling notes about Silver Flame while she was writing Akawar. So I don't think it was like in her mind when she was writing about the blood, right? Mm. But I just like reading that, like maybe just like remember like how I felt like reading about Nessa and Gwen and Emery and the blood, right? And how like upsetting and like empowering that it was and that they are their own like little like sister group i don't know i just i'm so excited I, for this girl gang yeah i, I love, love them so much i love them so much and it's one of my favorite and like the, the sarah's so good at writing these friendships and i think it's just even more evident like they, they literally make friendship right <laughs> it's like with it's so like, cute and they're their little smutty book club i oh, yeah uh, i did not love them more it, it us it, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like oh, that they like go through that blood, like they go through that, and it just like made me think about my favorite parts of of yeah. the future stuff to come when he was because he like did you like really describes what the blood right is that maybe she did have like a kernel in her mind that she wanted to have Nesta go through it because fair Farrah trains with Cassian, but we don't get the like on the ground. We just get like, and then she was done. But like with Nesta, we get all that training. Yeah, and, like, and it's really interesting then too because I don't want to burn content for next week's pod on Echor, but like in reading it right now, it's like Cassian tries to get Nesta to do like immediately. It's just really interesting to reread these books, knowing the trajectory of Nessa's arc, like completely and where she's going, because it's just like, I already liked her story, but then like in her journey through Silver Flames, but it's even more rereading to like know it and like see where she's at through these books, because girlfriend goes through it and she comes a long way and i like it a lot jesse thanks so much for being here and 
finally being someone else who cried a lot on this on this podcast, <laughs> not just me. I'm flabbergasted. I didn't like I've read that line a thousand times and never once. I mean, it was always like felt it, but I never yeah. oh, to like say there's something about saying it out loud that just like really got to me. And I don't know. I, I was I was doing like for my birthday, I did like a stack of my favorite books and I took a photo of them and I realized that this is one of my favorite books. Like, I don't know how that happened. And it's not even so much because like the writing really speaks to me. It's just that it's my comfort read whenever I am sad. I know I can turn to chapter 54, 55, my favorite parts. There's like a scene in Akawar I, I read all the time. And yeah, I don't know how it happened, but it's just like it's genuinely a good fucking book. Like this is a, a great really book. Good, I really yeah. loved rereading it. When I first rated on Goodreads, I think I gave it four stars. And I think it was because of like some of the terrible moments I talked about, like the arrow painting on the stomach that like really pulled me out of it. But now I'm like at the point with reading her stuff. I think I said this to you guys off air. I'm like a muggle who gets too close to Hogwarts. And then it's like, "Ah, I gotta go somewhere else. Like I, that's how I feel when I see too many like mates, too many males, too many like purring, any of the things that I don't like these like ticks, I've just learned to like glaze over them at this point and just really concentrate on what I loved. So now I can just look at this book and be like, this book is so good. I love it yeah. so much. Um, yeah, there's so much to be said about like just tempering your expectations, like really with anything. Yeah. Just yeah. know what you're reading, know what you're watching, know what you're, you know? Yeah. I mean, I jokingly call these books very boring and to a certain extent, like that's what it is. <laughs> but the love that Reese and Farah have is just... It's yeah, it's so powerful and so strong. And I'm, you know, I love fantasy and I love adventure, but I'm here for the romance. Mm-hmm. And that's I think one of the reasons that Throne of Glass, like I've been taking a little bit longer to like get into because yeah. it's not as much of a romance. But this just this feels primarily like a romance. Yeah. Yeah. They love each other so much. They complete each other that just oh, it just gets it gets me. I think mm-hmm. we've talked about this on this podcast before in our obsessions, but like everyone should read Neon Gods. If you don't, if you want this story, a literal Hades and Persephone's retelling without the magic involved, because like, I mean, that's what's great about this book. Like, we love the wings and lots and more sex, like that, but like, <laughs> and lots more sex. Like, what's a real porn? Like, this, this, this fairy porn, there is mm-hmm. one chapter of sex in this book. Um, it gets more. Um, going forward, but um, to varying degrees of success <laughs> as we go through. But uh, yeah, no, read that book if you like. Basically, want this and the same type of story and like great emotional connection. It really does feel like not like it's copying it in any way. I mean, both of them are copying the ancient Greeks uh, with right. their mythology here, but it, it's another really great emotional haze and perception you're telling, and uh, great love story. So next week. Moving on to Court of Wings and Ruin. Ruins? One ruin? ruin? Multiple ruin. It's ruin. Court of Wings ruin. and Ruin. Jesse's looking yeah. at her shop for us. <laughs> yeah. Courts of, a Court of Wings and Ruin. I only know these by the abbreviations. I know, so same. Aquar. We're reading Aquar, which is the last book in the main trilogy before uh, we spin off into other books in this world. Uh, we're really excited to talk about because I think a little bit more to chew on in a critical way in Aquar. It's a little more plotty too. So we'll be talking about all that next week. Just Tasia and I, um, maybe it won't be two plus hours. It's just us, but like <laughs> knowing us, it will be. Right. Um, 
before we leave, Jesse, tell our listeners where they can find you online and talk a little bit about your own podcast. Yeah, I have a podcast with uh, our good friend, Annie, and it's a Jane Austen podcast where we read the works of Jane Austen and we talk about them. Um, We've done Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice, and we're about halfway through Mansfield Park currently. And we read about five chapters uh, and then we talk about them. And you should definitely check us out and follow along. It's a lot of fun. And you can also find me online on Instagram. My handle is bookjessieisbetter. And you can follow my throne of glass journey there because this, this series is now my entire personality. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing thrills me more. Nothing thrills me more. Tasha, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ragey Cakes. I didn't give the podcast name. The podcast is the (laughs) the daily nightly. (laughs) It's a, the daily nightly. Just Google Jesse and Jane Austen <laughs> podcasts and good fucking luck. Yeah, the, the daily nightly. I'm very good at marketing. Uh, K-N-I-G-H-T-L-E-Y. That's, that's <laughs> baseball nightly. Like um, Mr. Nightly. Really operating it a thousand percent right now. <laughs> <laughs> on Instagram at written underscore reads. You can find the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at actuh. You can shoot us an email if you'd like it, actuhpod at gmail.com. And if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate that. Uh, if we start getting more reviews, we want to read some of them here. So, like, you know, leave us a review. It'll be great. Do it. We do love it, do it. it. See you all next week. Thanks again, Jesse. As always, I'm sure we'll have you back very soon. Yeah, you're basically an honorary, like, third co host at this point. Oh my yeah. God, don't make I think me you're, you're our most frequent <laughs> guest. You're already emotionally vulnerable. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.